Last week, Pastor Jack wrapped up our series on reconciliation, and now we are able to start our new summer series, which is called, What Does the Bible Say About? And I'm looking forward to this series. It's going to be an unusual one, and, and I think it's going to be it's a little bit of excitement here, because I actually don't know where it's going to go. Because here's what we're going to do. Each week, we are going to take a different topic, and we are just going to talk about what does the Bible say about that topic. And the associates and I, we had a meeting and we came up with a bunch of topics and we scheduled out the first four sermons in this series. But the summer is a, it will need at least 12 sermons. And so what we are doing is, you'll have this card in your bulletin if you're here, and it says, what does the Bible say about? And it has a box. And what you can do is you can write something in that box and you can put this card in the same place where you put the connection card, and we are going to go through these, and we are going to use these to choose the remaining eight sermons. Now, hopefully, we will get a lot more than eight suggestions, and if we don't use yours for a sermon, what we're going to try and do is address all of the rest of them in our live broadcast that we do on Facebook and YouTube at 3 p.m. on Thursdays. And you can watch that after if you miss it, but we're going to try to answer all of these questions. Now, these were in your bulletin last week, and we got three really good suggestions. We didn't get any bad ones. There were only three suggestions. Uh, there were three that got submitted, but they were really good. So I'm looking forward to what you guys come up with for these suggestions. And if you're watching online, in our digital sanctuary, up at the top, there's a button that says, what does the Bible say about? You can click there and you can submit a question digitally. If you don't have the cards, you can always put it on a connection card or, or send us an email. Uh, so the reason why we're doing this is, one of them is that we normally, I try to do a series on a topic or a book of the Bible, and when you're doing series, there are a lot of subjects that just don't come up or won't, wouldn't come up very easily. And so this gives us a chance to address some topics that might be better addressed in just a one-off sermon. It also means that we get to address topics that you are interested in. Uh, well, hopefully we're already doing that, but specifically ones that came from you, that, that questions that you have about Scripture. So the, the topic of the sermons is one of the points. But the other point is I recognize we're not going to answer all your questions about the Bible in one summer. Right? That's not how it works, and when we finish the series, you're still going to have questions about what the Bible says about certain things. I'm still going to have questions about what the Bible says about certain things. But what we're hoping to do through the series is to demonstrate to you how to find those answers. Because finding answers in Scripture, there is an art to it, because the Bible is a very unique kind of book that we just don't have an equivalent for. We don't write the way biblical authors did, and finding answers in Scripture is an art. And so hopefully by watching how we get, how we put together these sermons and how we answer these questions, it will also equip you to be able to find answers in Scripture. So that's kind of the, the vision for the series, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So please make sure and put in um, questions. You can put in as many as you want. Um, we'd, love to, we'd love to be just inundated with them. Um, careful what you wish for. But today, it seems like a really good place to start to talk about what does the Bible say about itself? Because it's a valid question, why do we care what the Bible says about anything? Right? There, there's a reason why we care what this ancient document has to say about modern problems. Right? And that, that reason has to do with the fact that it comes from God, and Christianity has always had scriptures to work from. The thing is that we don't always agree on how scripture speaks 
or how to read Scripture or what kind of authority Scripture has. And so, and that's a very important first piece of how we read the Bible, of understanding how the Bible speaks to us. And so, what we're going to do today is we're first going to talk about the way we tend to talk about the Bible and how that can get off base in some ways. And then what we're going to do is look at what, how the Bible talks about itself. And once we've learned how the Bible talks about itself, we're going to draw some conclusions about what we need to do as Christians to, to follow Scripture and to apply Scripture and, and be obedient to Scripture. So we're going to start by talking about the ways in which Christians tend to talk about the Bible. First observation, and this will require some explanation, uh, the words we use to describe the Bible tend to be fighting words, not Bible words. Here's what I mean. Christians have had 2,000 years to disagree about virtually everything, including the Bible. Okay? And what happens when Christians disagree is because we generally, we generally all share Scripture, we don't disagree on whether we agree with the Bible, but we disagree on how we interpret the Bible. Right? And then, so what that means is we can't just say, well, I agree with what Bible says, the Bible says and I disagree with what the Bible says. Because we disagree on how to interpret it, we invent other words to use to describe the different positions so that we know which side of this issue are, you, are we on. Like technically, the word predestination, everybody believes in predestination. It's a matter of what does predestination mean that's the difference. Because it says we're predestined. What does that mean? That's where we disagree, right? And so we've invented words like Arminian and Calvinist, words that don't appear in the Bible. The same thing has happened in how we talk about the Bible is that we end up with these two different camps and we invent these words to describe which camp we are in. They're fighting words. And by, they have to be non-biblical words because both sides are using the Bible. So we end up with these non-biblical words that actually define our, our fighting position. And then we start teaching the next generation the fighting words first. And so they come to whatever the subject it is with these, with these uh, blinders on of the, the fighting words. And they know that the fighting words are true, and then they look to how, how does the Bible fit into these fighting words. So, for instance, in this particular... Uh, well, no, let's go back to the first fighting words. The first fighting words that we know of were, they're in Greek, homoousia, hypostasis. A bunch of words were invented to, for this debate about how does Jesus have two natures and how is God three and one at the same time. They couldn't settle it. Uh, they couldn't settle this debate, so they ended up with these technical Greek philosophical terms that don't appear in the Bible. And to this day, we have those in our creeds, translated into English. When you fast forward to the, to the Reformation, we ended up with phrases like sola gracia, now we're in Latin, sola gracia and sola fide, which are grace alone, faith alone. Those do not appear in the Bible, but they were used as fighting words to define Protestants versus Catholics. And then in the last hundred years, in the, the 1900s, the, the debate over Scripture exploded, and it's called the modernist controversy, and it was this huge thing that split denominations, and the words we invented there were infallible and inerrant, were the most common ones. And words that do not appear in the Bible, words that the Bible does not appear, use for themselves, highly technical words. Any of you really clear on the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Like that's, that's kind of vague, right? They're not Bible words. The Bible doesn't use those words for themselves. Now, I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong, 
but they, to some degree, they're right, some degree, but they're not the way the Bible talks about themselves. And so what happens is, a whole generation or a few generations now have been taught to approach the Bible in very specific ways, saying whatever the Bible is, it has to be inerrant and infallible. So interpret accordingly, right? It's the same thing like whatever the Bible says, it has to say grace alone, faith alone. So interpret accordingly. And this is, this is where we get into trouble because it, especially when we're talking about the Bible, it warps our understanding of what kind of book the Bible is. Because we are taught the fighting words first, what we th- tend to think about the Bible is that the Bible is an encyclopedia to answer all of our questions or a rule book to settle all of our debates. That's how we use it, and that's how we define it. Those are the words we use to describe it. And so like the, the most important kind of book to be infallible or inerrant, or inerrant is a reference book, right? A book that you bring up to answer questions that you need to find out. You know, you, you really want the phone book to be inerrant. You know, you really want like your your if you have a medical book or like you want your doctor's textbooks to be inerrant, right? Like that's that's where we want that's where these words are most valuable, and it's warped the way we think of what the Bible is, and it's warped the way we use the Bible. So that now we use the Bible as a reference book. You go to the concordance, you want to know about a certain subject, you find verses that mention it in the concordance, and you go back and you read those verses, and that's your answer for what the Bible says. Now, if you do that enough times, you realize it's actually a lot more complicated than that, because the Bible doesn't really fit. There are a lot of words you want the Bible to explain, that it do, or a lot of subjects it doesn't seem to touch on. And what ends up happening then is because we use these words uh, we use the Bible in this way, we end up warping what the Bible actually says because if it's an encyclopedia, like all encyclopedia articles are equal, right? They're all, they're, they're just references. They're all equally true. They all, equal, they all speak in the same way, right? And so um, you can pull up an encyclopedia and just read one thing and that's the only thing that's important to you and you're fine and you just move on. But that's not quite how the Bible works. And so what's happened is we've ended up warping what our priorities to be very different from Scripture. For instance, the Bible says very little about the details of predestination. The Bible does not seem very interested in working, untying the knot of how much control I have, how, how much control God has versus how much He's given to me. Now, whole denominations and traditions have been split and have fought and, and been twisted around because of that one subject. And, and trying to define all the different degrees of, of how we're predestined or whether all of that, the Bible just isn't that, that focused on that subject. Um, speaking in tongues only comes up a couple of times in the Bible, and yet it becomes a huge deal in some traditions or, or in comparing, some, comparing to other traditions. The, the manner and length of time in which the universe was created, not talked about very much in the Bible. Pretty much just a couple of chapters. Uh, the millennium, right? So this is a generational gap where I think like the church has made a, a lo- large section of the church has made a hard pivot. We don't really argue about the millennium very much, or we do it kind of behind closed doors. It, it appears in one chapter, and there are like premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, um, and then there's pre-tribulation premillennialism, mid-tribulation premillennialism, post-tribulation, like all one chapter. <laughs> Right? And, and we get into all this stuff because we get focused on things the Bible doesn't actually seem all that focused on. And this is a problem because what ends up happening is we have people, and I have been one of them, who will say, I absolutely believe what the Bible says. The Bible is, has authority over me. But the result is that the Bible rules over me the way the Queen rules over England. 
the way that, okay, weird reference, let me explain. So the Queen of England, the, the phrase that they use is she reigns, but she doesn't rule. Okay, so the Queen of England technically is the head of the country. Everything is done in her name. All public servants are servants of the Queen, right? But whenever the Queen gives a speech, you can bet she didn't write that speech. The government, the parliament wrote it for her. Whenever she signs a bill, you can bet it wasn't her idea. She just signs whatever they put in front of her because it's actually parliament that's in charge. And that's the way they want it to be, right? What ends up happening when we start handling the Bible this way is that the Bible reigns, but it doesn't rule because the Bible ends up saying only what we allow it to say. The Bible ends up speaking to us only in the ways that we're willing to hear it. And so we will say, I believe the Bible, but the Bible can only tell me these things. Like I, The Bible is the authority. Okay, Bible, here's your script. Here's what you can tell me. Right? And that's not actually, as much lip service as we may pay to the authority of Scripture, Scripture doesn't actually end up having any authority over us because it can't tell us things we don't want to hear. Or it can't speak to us in ways that we don't want to be spoken to. And that's a problem. So, if we're going to untie that knot, if we're going to deal with that problem, then, or if, and if we're going to trust the Bible at all, we have to trust what the Bible says about itself. We have to treat the Bible the way it treats itself. It's not obedient to Scripture to treat it like an encyclopedia when it's not an encyclopedia, right? So if we believe that we can trust the Bible, you have to trust what the Bible says about itself. So, now what we're going to do is we're going to pull out some passages where we see, especially in the New Testament, we see Scripture writers talking about the Bible and the significance of the Bible and the role of the Bible. And, we're going to, and you're going to notice that it's, it's, it's a different set of vocabulary. They don't use the word inerrancy, inerrant, or, uh, infallible, even authoritative, or they don't really use the word inspired, not the way we use it. Now, I'm not saying that those are all wrong. What I'm saying is that, that that's not the way the Bible prefers to talk about itself. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in the most important authority on the Scripture. We're going to look at what does Jesus say about Scripture. And we're going to start with John chapter 5. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. All right, any of you who thinks you're a Bible scholar, a Bible nerd, you know, you spend, you have a lot of books, spend a lot of time, anybody who may think that, the Pharisees leave us all in the dust. They have the Old Testament memorized, they have dedicated their whole lives like they are, they know the, their scripture just on an insane level that we can't even aspire to. I think our brains just aren't wired for that level of memory anymore because of how, you know, we don't need to remember things. They're in my phone. But, I mean, they are incredibly good at knowing scripture. And yet, Jesus says to them, it's no good. You, you spent all your time in scripture thinking that'll save you, but the person they talk about is standing right in front of you and you're missing him. It, what's the point? Because the, the Scripture is supposed to prepare you for Jesus. Like all of your studying is for naught. If you study Scripture all your life and then you meet Jesus and you miss Him, this is what He's saying to them. That the point seems to be of Scripture, it was to point them to Jesus. Later on, it wasn't just the Pharisees who made this mistake, the disciples did too, which is why after the resurrection, Jesus says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. 
everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three parts of the Old Testament. So basically, in the whole Bible at that time. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. What was all of Scripture leading to? It was leading to Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection. It was all pointing to that. And finally, the author of Hebrews opens his book by saying this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by Paul's letter to the Romans. Wait. By John's revelation. No. By his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The decisive revelation of God is Jesus. The most important way for us to encounter God is through Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Romans and Revelation aren't important. What I'm saying is Romans and Revelation exist also to point us to Jesus. So the most important thing the Bible says about itself is that the Bible testifies to us about Jesus. See, we have a temptation to turn the Bible into an idol. You know it's possible to make the Bible into an idol. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing because their study of Scripture, their focus on Scripture, got, and, and knowing Scripture got so technical and so off base that they missed Jesus. That's an idol, right? And the way we study Scripture and the way we use Scripture is supposed to point us toward Jesus. And I can tell you, I'll confess that there are ways that I've used Scripture when, in my past that have probably driven people farther away from Jesus the way I use the Bible at them, or the way I use the Bible at someone in their presence, that has actually pushed them farther from Jesus. The goal of Scripture is to testify about Jesus, and it always needs to be used to that end. Now, now I want to go into a couple of other passages that we commonly use in the, in the letters, and one from the Psalms, to describe the significance of the Bible, because it's not just about meeting Jesus. That's where it starts. But there's, there's a whole lot more to what Scripture is, is doing for us. And this is one of the famous passages used to describe the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Your translation may say all Scripture is inspired. We're going to talk about that God-breathed inspiration part later. Today, I want to, right now, I want to focus on the word. If you asked me to list adjectives for the Bible, it would take me a really long time to get to useful. Right? That's not a word I would start with. I would start with true, authoritative. You know, I might throw in inerrant or infallible or you know, those kind of words. Like we, we jump to authority. But when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says it's useful. And what is it useful for? It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So the first thing the Bible does is it connects us with God. Now it's helping us to grow, right, in all these ways to, by teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. But even that isn't the point. The point isn't to know all the facts from the Bible and just have a head full of true facts from God. Notice the point is so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The point isn't to get all the Bible knowledge in your head and let it die there. The point is for it to come out in your actions and your behavior. So really, you could paraphrase it this way. The Bible is useful for making us useful. Right? It's useful for equipping us so that we can be of use to the kingdom of God. Because if you get the whole Bible in your head and it never changes the way you behave, you haven't gotten there yet. 
right? If you get the whole Bible in your head and you haven't met Jesus, you haven't gotten there. But if you get the whole Bible in your head and you meet Jesus and it doesn't change you, you also still haven't gotten there. It's not just about meeting Jesus. Lots of people met Jesus. It's about following Jesus. And Scripture teaches us how to follow Jesus, how to obey Him, how to be able to live out the life He calls us to lead. And so we are not just, the Bible isn't just a repository of facts. It is there for a purpose. Often when we put the Bible on this idle kind of pedestal, we think the Bible is just this true thing that exists for the sake of itself. The Bible doesn't exist for its own sake. It exists as a tool that God uses to instruct us, to meet with us, to change us, so that we can be of use to the kingdom. Paul actually, most of what Paul says about Scripture, I've found, is in his letter to pastors, his letters to pastors. And he also talks about, he talks about the law specifically in an interesting passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrines that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Finally, doctrines. It's about doctrines, right? I use the Bible to get all my right doctrines and then beat people over the head with them because they're wrong, right? That, okay, here's the important thing to work out about this. First thing I want you to notice because we're going to come back to it later. He says, the law is made not for the righteous but for lawbreakers. That's interesting, an interesting thing to say. Uh, we'll pack, unpack that in a second. But he says, the law is there for people who are not doing what the law says, who need to be, need to be taught how to live the right way. And he gives us a list of examples of those. But notice the way he phrases this. Because what we often do is we hold up the Bible and we say, I have here the absolute moral code, the, the undoubted objective moral code that everybody secretly knows is true, and you're doing it wrong, and we beat people up with our moral code from the Bible. And that's not how Paul talks about this. Notice he says, whatever, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. Okay? It's grounded in the gospel. This is something very important for us to remember, that what the Bible has to say about right and wrong matters because the gospel is true. If Jesus isn't king, there's no hope for us, and it doesn't really matter what the Bible says about right and wrong. It's irrelevant if Jesus isn't king, and there isn't a way for us to be saved and to become, uh, to become part of the kingdom. So when, when we just take the law as a way to bash people over the head and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, that's, that's not really representing it well because it needs to start with Jesus. When we recognize, because it's, it's supposed to be good news, that's what gospel means, and it's good news because we start with the fact that Jesus is king, that there is hope. That there is a way for us to be restored, to be reconciled, to be repaired. There is a way for us to be remade in the way God intended us to always be. And once we recognize that hope and we embrace that hope, then we get into the details of this is what that looks like. And we learn from Scripture what that behavior is supposed to look like. But it starts with the realization that Jesus is King. And we, we learn to, to live out the commands of Scripture because we want to obey our King who saved us. So the way I would summarize this is that the, the word they, Paul uses is good. The Bible is good 
for teaching us to live out the Gospel. Scripture demonstrates for us how we can live out the lives that we were designed for and that we are freed to live by the blood of Jesus. Now what about this whole, the law is not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers? Does that mean that as long as I'm not doing the list of things that Paul, that Paul listed there, that I don't need the Bible anymore, that it's not useful? No, obviously. But why not? What use is the law then? Well, there's a very interesting thing, that a, tre- a thread that is pulled through the Bible, and, and here's a really obvious place to find it in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. This isn't something that the law doesn't normally do. The law doesn't normally, laws don't normally make people wise, right? Like, driver Zed did not make me wise. Did any of you have, like, your big, like, transformation education moment in driver Zed? Like, knowing traffic laws doesn't make me a better person. It just makes it less likely I'll get a ticket. But it's not like an opportunity for personal growth. Now, maybe having to control a vehicle was an opportunity for personal growth for you, but learning the laws isn't. Like, you're not better for knowing what the laws are normally. You just know what's going to get you a ticket and what's not. But the law of Moses, the law of God, is different because knowing the law of God actually makes you wise. Why does it make you wise? Because these laws weren't written by just anybody. It wasn't written by a collection of people in a, in a city council or a state legislature or a, con, or a congress. Or, they're written by God. Now, they're written for, and most times, they're, in most situations, they're written for particular times and places, but they're written by God. And as we study Scripture, because it's written by God, we're actually able to learn from the person who wrote the laws of the universe. Like the guy who wrote the law of gravity, the God who wrote the law of gravity, also authored this book, right? And so we learn, we can be wise by understanding his perspective, the principles that we learn from Scripture. And so the Bible is trustworthy for making us wise. You want to know who's going to teach you how to live uh, the right way to live your life? Start with the person who gave you life. Right? Those principles, that, that, that revelation, you can trust because it comes from the ultimate authority. It comes from God. And so as we study Scripture, we can trust Scripture to give us wisdom, to help us to be able to, to make godly decisions. Because this is the important thing about wisdom. If you're only ever expected to follow orders, you don't need wisdom. right? Foot soldiers don't need wisdom. It's people who have to make decisions that need wisdom. The Bible does not give you an answer for every single situation you can think of. And we've actually come up with some really weird ways to interpret the Bible by twisting it to, to address modern things that, that the writers of Scripture could never have anticipated. Scripture isn't meant to be a reference book that can cover every single situation you'll ever think of. It's meant to train you to be wise so that you can deal with situations that the Bible does not specifically address. So if you're looking for a life manual, the Bible is not meant to be that. When I was a kid, there was a song, uh, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, by Jars of Clay, and that's B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, every word of that is wrong. It's not basic, and it's not meant to just be instructions. It trains us to be wise to make godly decisions. The last thing I want to say about the Bible is the second, um, the second popular verse that we use to describe the Bible. It's in Hebrews. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, 
joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Quick, quick mini lesson on identifying when the Bible is talking about itself. The phrase Word of God and the Bible do not have the exact same range of meaning. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll say, anytime the Bible says Word of God, it means the Bible. And that's not true. It's kind of a, a squares and rectangles thing, right? All squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. So Scripture is the Word of God, but there's more to the Word of God than just Scripture. Now, I'm not saying there's more books. What I'm saying is the most important Word of God is Jesus Christ, right? He is, if there's, when we talk about the Word of God, that's Jesus. There's the written Word of God, which is Scripture. Most often, actually, in the Old Testament, though, they're talking about the authoritative Word of God. When God, God has authority and decides something's going to happen, that's Him making a declaration like a human king would and His will. That's the Word of God. So like when the Bible says, when, uh, when Isaiah says, my word will not return to me void, that doesn't mean that every tract or every Gideon Bible you hand out is going to reap rewards on its own. It means that when God says something, it's going to happen. Right? Now, in this case, the reason I point that out is because in this case, we have to understand what, the, to fully get the point that the author of Hebrews is making, we have to understand why he's talking about the Word of God. So we're going to rewind. Just bear with me real quick here. Because uh, he's been talking about a specific passage in Scripture for a chapter and a half now. So in chapter 3, uh, he says, uh, he quotes Psalm 95. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. So this is uh, Psalm 95. David wrote it, and he wrote it to his congregation talking about something God said to the Israelites under Moses. God spoke to the Israelites under Moses, and then David is talking about when God spoke to the Israelites under Moses. And hundreds of years later, the author of Hebrews is quoting that. Okay, So Hebrews is quoting, David is quoting God in, in Exodus. Okay? And he, he comes back to it several times, because in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Just the same verse. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he comes back again. God, again, said a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, ink and paper were expensive back then. There's a reason why the author of Hebrews quotes the same verse three times in a chapter and a half. Because it's important. He's focusing on that. And notice, hearing his voice, the voice that spoke to under Moses and was quoted by David hundreds of years before he wrote this. And when he's talking about that voice, that's when he says, for the word of God is alive and active. See, the question, here's the thing we need to recognize, and they, they knew better than we do. Most of the Bible is not written to you. You know that? Like most of it is not addressed to you. Like the letter, like the letter to the Romans is written to the first century Roman church, right? And I remember when I was a kid having that epiphany that when you're reading in Kings and it says, and the marker is there to this day, it wasn't talking about 1999 when I was reading it. It was talking about like 640 BC when the author was writing it, right? To this day is not actually the day I was reading it because it wasn't written to me. It was written to an ancient audience. We need to remember that we are, we are a third party reading a story from the outside. So why do these ancient stories and conversations between God and his people matter if they're not said to us? Well, because the word of God spoken to those people is alive and active because the God who spoke them is alive and active. It's the same God. Now, why do we not care as much about the Thucydides Peloponnesian history of the Peloponnesian War? 
Well, everybody there is dead. It's, uh, the politics of the region have long since changed. It's not really super relevant. But in the Bible, the important character is still very much alive and active. Right? And so the God that we interact with is the same God who interacted with David and the same God who interacted with Moses. So when we hear what God said to the Israelites and what he said through David, it's the same God that we're going to deal with today. And we can learn from that. So we saw this beautifully in, I love the communion meditation today, when, when uh, Vicki pulled out all these things about God's encounter with people in the past. None of those were about us. But the same God who saw Hagar is the God that we deal with today. The same God who heard Ishmael's cries is the God that we know today. And, so God, and God doesn't change. And so this can be an important thing for, for us to remember as we're reading scriptures. Not that these words are necessarily written to me, but I'm dealing with the God they were written about. Because sometimes we get into trouble by claiming this verse was written about me. And we always do that with the positive verses, the encouraging health and wealth verses. And, and we're very selective. But what we need to say is the God who said that is the God I'm dealing with now. So the Bible is alive. And most importantly, for the point that the author of Hebrews is making, is it's alive, and that means that it holds us to account. Because once we have the words of God in our hand, we lose a lot of our excuses. We can't say, well, I didn't know you were that kind of God. That seems to be what he's saying about a double-edged sword. It cuts through our excuses. It cuts through our barriers. It, it is alive, and it is, it is very relevant to us today. Not because it can be twisted out of its context, but because it's the same God who speaks to us today. And when we recognize all these things about the Bible, when we recognize that it points us to Jesus, that it is useful for making us useful, when we recognize all these things that the Bible does, there's one real explanation for it. And that is it must have come from God. And I think that's the conclusion that we should reach, rather than necessarily the starting point. I think it is a good starting point. But also, I think we, the only thing you can conclude when millions of people throughout history have testified that they met Jesus through Scripture and their lives have been changed through Scripture is that Scripture came from God. It was breathed out by God. That's how uh, he wrote it in 2 Timothy, how Paul wrote it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's breathed out by God. Now, I like the fact that Paul doesn't get any more specific than that. Because again, working out to what degree is God responsible, to what degree does the personality of the author come out, like all that stuff, he, just, he says it's breathed out by God. It came out by His Spirit. The interesting thing is there's two ways to interpret this verse, to translate it. Rather, it could be he's saying all scripture is God breathed and is useful, or he could be saying all God breathed scripture is useful because the, that, the, the word is is not in the Greek. So he could be saying all scripture that is breathed out by God is useful, which could be taken a couple of different ways. It could mean that he's saying, you know, not the Apocrypha because that's called Scripture, but it's not inspired by God. But it could also be saying, everything that's breathed out by God is useful, not just the stuff we want to be useful. Not just our favorite verses. Not just the parts that are most convenient for us. And so what, as we reach our conclusions, the first conclusion I want us to reach in recognizing that Scripture is breathed out by God, that it comes from Him, if it is breathed out, and the Bible is breathed out by God, that means it reveals exactly what He wants it revealed. The Bible reveals to us what God wants revealed. It doesn't reveal less than that, and it doesn't reveal more than that. 
And we get into trouble both ways. There are times when we say, okay, I just won't read that part of the Bible because I don't want God to talk to me about that issue in my life. And there's other times we say, hey, I really want the Bible to answer this question in this way, so how can I twist it around to make it say what I want it to say or to talk about the subject that I want it to talk about? And if we are going to let Scripture be an authority over us, we have to recognize that it reveals what God wants it to reveal, no more and no less. We shouldn't twist it into something else, and we shouldn't shove any of it under the carpet. Right? It is, if it's going to be an authority, if it's going to be something that we follow, that has to be true. Not only do we have to, to take all of Scripture, but also we have to take our priorities from Scripture. Following the Bible means following the Bible's priorities. Too often we get pulled into things that are not clear in Scripture, things that are not talked about very much in Scripture. So many church divisions have happened over things because the Bible doesn't talk about them very much and they turned it into this huge issue. It was so much room for disagreement. And the truth is that we need to choose our priorities the way Scripture makes, sets its priorities. The things the Bible talks a lot about is what we need to talk a lot about. And the Bible talks a lot about Jesus. Right? The Bible talks a lot about following Jesus. The Bible talks a lot about loving our neighbors. The Bible is very clear on, on the essentials. That's actually how we define the essentials. And the Bible, all these other things that the Bible is not clear on or does not seem to treat as important, we would take our cue and treat them the same way. Right? The next thing that we, the next conclusion I want us to draw, or as we look at the priorities of Scripture, Remember that the Bible's first priority is to point us to Jesus. The first priority is to point us to Jesus, and that needs to be our priority in handling Scripture too. We need to only handle Scripture in ways that point us to Jesus. And as we get distracted by other things, and as we start to twist into the ways that distract us from Jesus or push people away from Jesus, that needs to be a red flag. We need to remember that Scripture first and foremost must introduce us to Jesus Christ. And second of all, the Bible's next priority is to teach us to be wise, godly, and useful to the kingdom. And so our study of Scripture cannot be simply about building up our head knowledge. It has to be about changing our behavior. It has to be about changing the way we live. It has to be about changing uh, God using us to change the world. It has to lead to something, right? The Bible is here for a purpose, for God to use it to introduce us to Jesus to grow us in faith and love so that we can serve our community and world. Amen? As we close, I'm going to invite you to uh, take some next steps. There are a few next steps you can take. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Him, then today is the best day for you to have that encounter, for you to give your life to Jesus. And so you can do that by coming up during the song as we stand and sing. You can talk to a, a pastor or a staff member after church. If you are online, you can contact the church office. You can get in touch with a, Christ, with a Christian that you trust. But today is the best day for you to make that decision to follow Jesus. If you would like to know more about getting connected with this church, we have a class that's going to meet at 12.30 today. It also will meet uh, as often as we need it, once a month. Uh, we would love for you to come and find out more about becoming a member, about getting plugged in, getting involved with our church. Uh, we also believe very strongly in small groups and in the, ability, uh, in the importance of having relationships beyond just sitting in the chairs here and, and opportunities to delve into Scripture together and, and talk about them together and, and learn more. And so we'd love for you to join a small group. And finally, remember, the Scripture is useful for making us useful. That's where we invite you to join a service team. 
and you can get involved in serving around the church. You can mark any of these on your connection card. There's also service cards in the foyer that can give you some ideas of how you can help. So I encourage you to consider one of these next steps as we stand and sing our final song.